This morning we're going to continue in our series on grace. And again, Jason uh, has teed this up pretty well. Today we're going to talk about communion and uh, the table where Jesus took the bread and the cup and set in motion one of the church's really probably most holy traditions, the one that we do more often probably than any other thing. Um, But this morning I want to look at uh, and explore what makes it holy um, and where the symbolism comes from and why it was that Jesus chose to to kind of insert himself into this this thing of uh, of the bread and the and the wine communion, and then the implications for us today, as we take it, we have some uh, we have some things that we're reminded of. Jesus wants us to do, and we also are reminded to examine ourselves and be careful when we take this communion. So, anyway, we will start with First Corinthians. Uh, chapter 11 in verse 23. For I pass on to you what I received from the Lord himself. On the night when he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took some bread and gave thanks to God for it. Then he broke it into pieces and said, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this to remember me. And in the same way, he took a cup of wine after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant between God and his people. An agreement confirmed with my blood. Do this to remember me as often as you drink it. For every time you eat this bread and drink this cup, you are announcing the Lord's death until he comes. Now keep in mind, when he said these words, he's sitting with his disciples at the Last Supper. I don't think they get it quite yet. You know, they don't understand the Lord's death. They don't know exactly what's coming Some of them have already rebuked him for acting like some, you know, it might be a bad situation coming up. But but, um, Jesus, and we'll see this throughout this whole part, there are some things that we know because we've studied and we we have hindsight, 2020, and there's some things they didn't know. And so we'll we'll start to look at those as well. But let's pray. Um, Father, we thank you so much for uh, your word. And Lord, for the things that you set in motion all the way back at creation, Lord. And everything fits into place without coincidence and without uh, surprise. It all fits into place just as Jesus fit right into the Passover celebration in Jerusalem. So, Father, we pray that you would open our eyes and our hearts this morning to communion on a new level Um, Lord, with a new appreciation for uh, just what it's all about. In Jesus' name, Father. Amen. So, please note I have two tables up here. Uh, The one table on my left has a nice goblet and a white linen covering, and it's got the bread and wine, and it's ready for communion. So, this may be kind of what you grew up with. I, I grew up Episcopalian, so... So, you know, I saw plenty of light, nice napkins, and I saw this would have been a silver goblet, and this would have been a tasteless little wafer of some sort. Um, on this side over here, I have an orange crush, grape juice, and some paper cups, and some Lance crackers. All right? So, let me ask you some questions. Which of these items can we take communion with? 
And which one of these, which one of these tables pleases God? Which table would Jesus choose? So, and the point is, and I don't want to, uh, I don't want to make light of communion, but the point is, the communion is a holy moment, but it's not a holy moment because of what it is. It's not a holy moment because of what cup the wine happens to be in, or what kind of bread it is. Um, it's a holy moment between you and your heart and your God. And what Jesus asked us to do is remember me. So it's not about the ritual, it's about why we do it. In 1 Corinthians, Jesus says, do this to remember me. So there's some streams of the Christian faith who've elevated the cup and the bread to a place where it's almost an idol. It's almost, well, it, it is. In, in uh, some places, it's holy. It's, uh, um, you might actually bow to it in a way um, and those kinds of things. It's almost a thing to worship itself. And that, you know, uh, again, I, I want you to respect the cup and the bread. But the point is Jesus wants you to remember him and he wants your heart. So it's not about the ritual. It's not about what you do it with. It's about how you approach that thing. For centuries, and not just in the movies, men have sought this holy grail. As, and as recently as, uh, and you, you'll note, this is the scene, of course, where the bad guy on the bottom chooses the most beautiful cup. And um, I was going to play the video, but I watched it again, and I thought, nah, probably not. So anyway, of course, Indiana, you know, Indy uh, chooses the, the one that looks, uh, uh, at, you know, most humble, I suppose. <clears throat> but uh, even as recently as 2014, the New York Post published an article about two historians who believe they have found the cup of Christ. So... There is actually, and this is a picture of the one that they think it is. Um, historians claim to have uh, recovered the grail in March of 2014. Now, there have been articles like this forever. They, I read it pretty deeply. There's a, a certain thing that happened with this cup, and it was taken from Jerusalem at, a, at you know, a thousand years ago or whatever it was, and it was moved to these places and hidden. Um, but again, the point is... Do you think Jesus cares about the cup? Yeah, I don't think he does. And it's so like us. We have this tendency, as Paul writes in Romans 1.25, we, we have a tendency to trade the truth for a lie and worship uh, the, the creation instead of the creator himself. And so we take these things like communion and we turn them into something that they are not. And I don't know why, but it is the heart of man to do it almost every time. In Numbers chapter 21, there's a story about a time when the Israelites complained in the wilderness. And as you know, if you've read the Old Testament, there's a ton of times they did this. But in this particular case, God sent poisonous snakes into their midst. 
How many of you are glad for the cross and the fact that when you complain, you don't open the kitchen up and there's poisonous snakes on the floor? You get that? I mean, this is grace we're talking about. It's the same God. He has the same attitude, but Jesus has made a way for us to stand into his, in his presence whole and clean. So they cried out and repented, and God had Moses create a bronze serpent and place it up on a pole. And the promise was that anyone who was bitten, who raised their eyes up and looked at the serpent, would be healed. Now watch. This is the way we do this. 480 years later, King Hezekiah was repenting and cleansing out the idols in Israel as they did fairly often. And this is what it says in 2 Kings 18. He did what was pleasing in the Lord's sight, just as his ancestor David had done. He removed the pagan shrines and smashed the sacred pillars and cut down the Asherah poles. He broke up the bronze servant that Moses had made because the people of Israel had been offering sacrifices to it. Isn't that the way we do it? We want the thing. We want to to elevate the cup. We want to elevate the thing instead of the creator who created. And so in chapter 23 of that, uh, of, of that book, it says that he brought the idols out and had them beaten to dust in the Kidron Valley. Now, keep in mind this Kidron Valley thing. We will come back to the Kidron Valley in a little while. But finally... Uh, all right, so you've got, you've got the Holy Grail. We've been looking for it for years. You've got movies. You've got all kinds of things on it. You've got uh, satire. Everybody's probably seen Monty Python. Um, by the way, some call me Tim. But um, anyway, and I get that a lot. But so, and you've got this serpent that they create, God created as a good thing. Look at it and be healed. 400 years later, they're worshiping it. Um, interesting, another, one, another point on that is that uh, God be- actually buried Moses himself. Now, why do you think God buried Moses himself? Nobody knows where Moses is buried. Let's look at that. So Moses, the servant of the Lord, died. And there in the land of Moab, just as the Lord had said, the Lord buried him in a valley near Beth Peor in Moab. But to this day... No one knows the exact place. So here's what we do. You know what would happen if we knew where Moses was buried? They'd be selling tickets to it. Uh, There'd be a tabernacle there. There'd be some holy place, and we'd be worshiping or thinking about Moses instead of thinking about God. And in Moses' case, he was so important to Israel that God apparently felt he needed to just sneak his body off and let that go. So, um, it's the same all the time for us and in our hearts. And so, our tendency is to worship the creation and not the creator. And so, when we do this, we give it power instead of honoring God's power. And so, just like in the movie, you remember that Indy didn't drink from the cup. He wasn't, that wasn't the point. The point was to take the holy cup, put the holy water in it, pour it on the the wound, and and his father would be healed somehow. Again, we give power to the thing and 
Jesus wants our heart. We give power to the event or the ritual, and Jesus wants us to remember him. So it's not about the ritual. It's about obedience. It's, a, it's about remembering. It's about uh, following his instructions. And as I stand between these two tables, let me tell you, neither one of them honors God. Only we do that with our hearts. Both can be a part of a holy moment when we approach them with love and respect and honor. So I can come here and I could have communion with you and we could remember Jesus with grape soda and a a Lance cracker. And the important part about this cup is that if Jesus had had these solo cups at the Last Supper, as soon as they'd gotten done, he would have gone, thank you. So you wouldn't take that. Now Joe's going to take that in a thousand years from now. People will know that that's the cup that I crunched uh, during this service. So what's the point? Jesus said, remember me. So let's look at why Jesus chose the Last Supper to initiate communion. Um, And and I want to remind you, in Matthew 5, 17, here's what Jesus said about himself. Don't misunderstand why I have come. I did not come to abolish the law of Moses or the writings of the prophets. No, I came to accomplish their purpose. I tell you the truth, until heaven and earth disappear... Not even the smallest detail of God's law will disappear until its purpose is achieved. Jesus came to fulfill what had already been promised. He didn't break everything. He didn't, uh, even though he talks about a new covenant, he didn't crush everything else. He didn't say everything's different now. But what he did was complete all the things that God had promised. And as we look at it, even the fact that he did the Last Supper on the night of Passover and slipped right into getting arrested later and being crucified the next day. It, it, there's, no, there's no coincidences here. There's no, oh, wow, how cool is that, how, that it worked out just right in the timing. I think we know who set up all the timing and put this thing together. But on the night when Jesus was portray, betrayed, all of the Jews were preparing to eat the Passover meal. This meal represented a time when they were saved in Egypt, when the spirit of death passed over the houses that had blood, uh, the blood of the lamb spread over them. Now, a lot of you are not my age, but you may recall seeing uh, Charlton Heston's Ten Commandments when you were a kid. And man, that, uh, that whole scene where the spirit of death goes through the city after they put the blood on the, on the doors just used to freak me out. Um, But it's such an important picture to remember. So let's look at Exodus uh, chapter 12. Then Moses summoned all the elders of Israel and said to them, Go at once and select the animals for your families and slaughter the Passover lamb. This was uh, brand new. This is what they were doing now. God had just instructed them about the Passover. Take a bunch of hyssop, dip it in the blood of the, in the basin, and put some of the blood on the top and on both sides of the doorframe. 
None of you shall go out of your door of your house until morning. And when the Lord goes through this land to strike down the Egyptians, he will see the blood on top of the, and the sides of the doorframe and will pass over that doorway. And he will not permit the destroyer to enter your houses and strike you down. Obey these instructions as a lasting ordinance for you and your descendants. And when you enter the land that the Lord will give you as he promised, observe this ceremony. And when your children ask you, what does this ceremony mean? Then tell them it is the Passover sacrifice of the Lord who passed over our houses, the houses of the Israelites in Egypt and spared our homes when he struck down the Egyptians. Then the people bowed down and worshiped and the Israelites did just as the Lord had commanded. It's no coincidence, of course, that Jesus arrives in Jerusalem during the Holy Week and during Passover celebration. And what we call the Last Supper was a Passover meal that Jesus was going to share with his disciples. Um, he'd been with them, what, three years or more? They knew each other. They'd been together. They had no doubt had this Passover meal before. It was not unusual. But in Luke 22, let's, let's look at the scenario as he sets it up. Now the festival of unleavened bread arrived when the, when the Passover lamb is sacrificed. And Jesus sent Peter and John ahead and said, go and prepare the Passover meal so we can eat together. Where do you want us to, to prepare it, they asked. And he replied, as soon as you enter the, into Jerusalem, a man carrying a pitcher of water will meet you. Follow him, and at the house he enters, say to the owner, uh, the teacher asks, where is the guest room where I can eat the Passover meal with my disciples? And he will take you upstairs to a large room that is already set up. That is where you should prepare a meal. And they went off to the city and found everything just as Jesus had said as they prepared the Passover meal there. I love this scenario. Can you imagine... Um, what was the guy thinking carrying the water? And these two guys just start following him, and then they follow him all the way to the house, and then they're knocking on the door. Uh, my imagination goes wild on these kind of passages. And can you imagine what must have gone on at that house that morning? I'm thinking about my own house and what I might say to Angie that morning. Uh, perhaps the owner of the house had had a vision or a dream. He woke up in the middle of the night. We don't really know. Either way, he would have been running around the house, hurrying his wife and servants along while they were wondering if he had lost his mind. The conversation or argument, as you might call it, might go something like this. The wife might say, a Passover dinner for who? I don't know yet. Just get ready. Get ready for how many? I think it's 13, but make sure the table's big enough for 26. You think it's 13? And why do you need such a big table for 13? They all want to sit on the same side. For what? For the picture woman. So we don't know. We don't know how big the table was. Where is that picture? You can go back there. I didn't get to see it. <clears throat> So this, of course, is Leonardo da Vinci's idea of how this went down. But it's always been funny to me, you know. And can you imagine uh, how the setup had to be just so they could get this shot? Um, so anyway, but as we dig in, 
um, when the time came, and this is Luke twenty-two fourteen. When the time came, Jesus and the apostles sat down together at the table. And Jesus said, I have been very eager to eat this Passover meal with you before my suffering begins. For I tell you now that I won't eat this meal again until its meaning is fulfilled in my kingdom. Let me tell you something. Every time I approach the uh, communion table, I remember that Jesus said those words. I remember that Jesus is waiting for us. The bridegroom is waiting for his bride. And he won't take this Passover meal. He won't celebrate this meal again until we're together in heaven. And then he took the cup of the wine and gave thanks to God for it. And he said, take this and share it among yourselves. For I will not drink again of this wine until the kingdom of God has come. And he took some bread and gave thanks to God for it. And then he broke it in pieces. And he gave it to the disciples saying, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And after supper, he took another cup of wine and said, This is the cup of the new covenant between God and his people, an agreement confirmed with my blood, which is poured out as a sacrifice for you. There are so many things going on at this table. And if you look in, the, in John and just start, uh, start in chapter 13 of John, this last supper lasts all the way to the beginning of chapter 18, there are so many things that Jesus said, so many things he accomplished, so many things he reminded them of, and so many things he's given us to remember. And the other thing I want to point out is that these were, un, these were not uncommon things. Um, this was as common, it was as common for them to drink wine at a meal and have bread there as it was as it is for us to have a Coke or a Pepsi or a whatever. Um, they had less uh, diabetes than we did, but um, anyway, they probably didn't even know what sugar was. But anyway, it, so Jesus took common things. It's not like the wine is spooky and special. It was a normal table item. It was always there. He took bread, the normal stuff that they ate, whether it was gluten-free or not, and I suppose some would argue Back then, it probably all was gluten-free. I have no idea. But um, Jesus took common things and turned them into an uncommon memory of him. So let's look at some of the things that Jesus reminds us of. In John chapter 13, it says, Before the Passover celebration, Jesus knew that his hour had come to leave this world and return to his Father. He loved his disciples during his ministry on earth, and now he loved them to the very end. It was time for supper, and the devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. Now watch in verse 3. Oh my gosh, this verse is, this verse is amazing. Jesus knew that the Father had given him authority over everything, and that he had come from God and returned to God. Now, the next verse starts with so. So that means that because of this, here's what he did. So he got up from the table, took off his robe, wrapped a towel around his waist, and poured a water, uh, water into a basin. And he began to wash the disciples' feet, drying them with the towel around him. 
remember me. We're talking about Jesus who knew he was God. And therefore, because he knew he was God, he naturally got up and knelt down and washed our feet. Remember me. From there, Jesus predicts Simon uh, Peter's denial. Remember me. John 14, 1, he says, don't let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God and trust also in me. Remember me. In 14, 15, he promises the Holy Spirit, our advocate, will come. In 14.28, he tells them he's leaving and going away, but that he's coming back. Remember me. Say that with me. Remember me. That's what Jesus wants us to do. One more time. Remember me. Chapter 15, Jesus teaches them, I'm the vine and you are the branches. Chapter 16, he promises them again that the Holy Spirit is coming, the comforter. Remember me and all that I've done. In chapter 17, he also prays over his disciples and he prays for you. Let's look at verse 20. I'm praying not only for these disciples, but also for all who will ever believe in me through their message. I pray that they will all be one, just as you and I are one. As you are in me, Father, and I am in you. And may they be in us so that the world will believe that you and I, that you sent me. You can almost sense the urgency in Jesus during this meal. It's like he's had all of this time with these knucklehead disciples who can't, uh, can't seem to remember things, don't know what to believe, aren't sure who he really is. So they ask him all kinds of questions. Yet, uh, the word says he loved them dearly and he wanted to share this meal with them. He knows that they're going to deny him and scatter and be afraid uh, just in the next few hours. There's so much to say and so little time to say it. Matthew says that they sang a hymn and went out to the Mount of Olives in his version of this. Now, as a musician and a worship leader, here we go again. Um, I just want to hear that song. I just want to know what it, which one it was. What was it? And then I know that Tomlin or Crowder would have to fix a few things and add a, add a bridge and a, maybe a second chorus so we could stand to sing it, you know. Um, and yet, isn't that us? That's the way we go. We want to do it again. We want... We want to drink from the cup. We want to sing the hymn. We want to find the shroud that wrapped Jesus. What on earth for? What on earth for? Jesus wants us to put all those things down and remember me. Say that again. Remember me. So let's talk about the Kidron Valley. The Kidron Valley has a small but fascinating part in this story. And Kidron actually means black brook or gloomy brook. 
And John mentions it in chapter 18, verse 1. He says, after saying these things, so after saying all those things in chapter 13, all the way up to, after saying these things, Jesus crossed the Kidron Valley with his disciples and entered the Grove of Olives. So one single obscure verse, something you might skip over, but the backstory on this one is just fascinating to me. The Old Testament tells us that during the period of the divided kingdom, there are at least three cleansings of the temple and Jerusalem. To remove the altars and the idols and that have, they've erected during the times of spiritual backsliding. Now, isn't that funny? Wouldn't it be something if, if the Lord could reveal to us the idols and altars that we build in our lives so that at least every now and then we could uh, repent and throw them all away or crush them and, or put them, make them dust again or whatever. I mean, Israel was always building these Asherah poles and all this stuff. And then a king would come along and they'd repent and everything would go. So King Asa, the third king of Judah, destroyed the idols and burned them in the Kidron Valley in 1 Kings fifteen twelve, around 911 B.C., a similar cleansing occurred roughly 200 years later, 716 B.C., when King Hezekiah, at the onset of his reign, had the idols and other uncleanness removed and carried out to the Kidron Brook. He was the one who destroyed the bronze snake. Remember, we talked about him. About 100 years later, King Josiah, in the 18th year of his reign, took him a while to... Uh, to to get uh, um, ready to go and, and want to, to ask for forgiveness, apparently. But after the 18th year of his reign in 16, 622 B.C., he had the high priest remove the idols and reduce them to dust in the Kidron Valley, 2 Kings 23. So where is the Kidron Valley in, in relative to the Garden of Gethsemane? Gethsemane is positioned on the slopes of the Mount of Olives directly west of the Temple Mount. Now remember, the Temple Mount is the highest point in Jerusalem. And between the Temple and the Garden was the Kidron Valley. It basically began, began there, and it runs 3,000... Mm, I don't know if it's surely not 3,000 miles, but it's, it runs out from there and out into the desert. Between the temple and the garden was the Kidron Valley, a wadi or a wash that was dry except during heavy rains when it would come uh, to become a pretty wild river. But there was another time when that dry bed was full. And this is what I want to point out. The afternoon before Passover, which makes it Thursday afternoon of the Passover week, the priests would have been sacrificing lambs on the altar of the temple for the feast. Now let's get Passover in our heads. So you're in Jerusalem. Probably you traveled to Jerusalem with your family to celebrate the Passover week. When you get to Passover, you have to pick a spotless lamb. You have to follow a certain uh, bunch of rules and you got to bring that lamb to the temple where the priest will cut its throat and then you take it home and prepare it for your Passover meal. This is very important. It was done very specifically. 
Listen to what John MacArthur writes in Experiencing the Passion. Historical records of Jesus' time indicate that as many as a quarter of a million lambs were slain in a typical Passover season, requiring hundreds of priests to carry out that task. There would be a tremendous amount of blood drained from 250,000 lambs along with the water used in the ritual cleansings on the altar. Where does all that water and blood go? You may have guessed, it goes right into the Kidron Valley. It drains from the altar in the area and it was carried into the Kidron just outside the Temple Mount walls. As Jesus and his disciples left the Last Supper, they crossed the Kidron to get to the Mount of Olives and the garden on the day when the blood of countless lambs was shed and was flowing in that valley. In other words, the Lamb of God who was on his way to being arrested and tried and crucified for our sins had to navigate the blood of the old covenant as he set out to fulfill the prophecies and begin the new. Lost on the disciples, no doubt, but crystal clear to Jesus as they stepped across or in or through that bloody ditch. Jesus said, remember me. As we close today, we're going to take communion like we normally do, sort of. What I mean by that is that we take communion at Highland every Sunday. I've been in churches which followed some other calendar or something, a church calendar, and they took communion at certain times. I've been in churches that did it so infrequently that I couldn't remember the last time I did it because they didn't want it to become rote. Um, here, we do it every week. I'm, I'm glad for that. <clears throat> this is a holy moment between you and God. And just like the table, um, Jesus encourages us to do this together. You know, there's no point in the Last Supper where he asked all the other disciples to leave while he did communion by himself, and then each person came and did communion by themselves. This is something we do together, and we remember him every time we do it. But let's go to 1 Corinthians 11 before we do that. It says, So anyone who eats the bread... And drinks this cup of the Lord unworthy is guilty of sinning against the body and the blood of the Lord. That is why you should examine yourself before eating the bread and drinking the cup. For if you eat the bread or drink the cup without honoring the body of Christ, you are eating and drinking God's judgment upon yourself. That is why many of you are weak and sick and some have even died. Now, I don't want to 
I'll tell you right now, we live in a time of grace. And Jesus has grace for me. I am a sinner, and I have sinned this week. Maybe even this morning. But the blood of Jesus shed for me, cleanses me, and I can approach the communion table. And I can approach it to remember Jesus. But Paul gives us a warning that we should examine ourselves, any of us. And if we approach this table flippantly, maybe, or without asking for him to settle, you know, the sins or forgive me, Lord. I mean, I don't know how many of you, I hope none of you just said, God, forgive me uh, one time. Because I have to do it like every other day. And the only reason I don't do it every day is I'm too stubborn. So we come to this table, you should come to it without, with not just skipping up here, but with honor and with respect and with taking a moment each time to examine your own heart. And oftentimes you've heard us say, you know, you may hear us say, if, if you've come to a place of belief in your heart and you you are a Christian and you believe uh, these things, you are welcome at this table with us? Absolutely. Um, if you aren't sure or you haven't made a choice to follow him, I would say please examine yourself and don't come if you haven't, if you haven't made that decision. Just based on the warning that Paul gives us. So this morning... Um, Let's pray for a second here, and then I'm, we're going to do communion just a little bit differently. Um, and I think, I think it's going to be kind of fun and unique. So all the introverts are going, oh, no. But just stick with me, and we'll tell you what we're doing. So, Father, we thank you so much. God, your mercy, your mercy is new every morning. And you have cleansed us, and you have washed us, and you have put up with us, and you love us. And we are so grateful. So, Father, this morning we examine our hearts. And, Lord, we we come to a place before you, and we say thank you. And I pray, Lord, as, as we approach this table this morning, I pray that you would... Uh, you would bless each person, Lord. Uh, you would make a connection with us and this thing, not because of the ritual of it, Lord, but because of our hearts and your desire for us to remember you. And Lord, we look forward to the day when we sit at the banquet table and we raise our goblets again and you break that bread again. Just take a moment to examine your heart.